Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude. This is our our once a month journey into the book of Jude. While you're turning there, let me give a brief recap of where we've been in Jude so far. Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus, and he writes this letter to believers in the early church who were shaken in their faith by false teachers. He, he's writing that to them, specifically calling them to contend for the faith that they first believed, to contend for the true gospel. And he has to make this appeal in this really short and very urgent sounding letter because there are false teachers who have infiltrated the church. Jude says that these false teachers crept in unnoticed and now are wrecking the church from the inside out. So the majority of this letter is an attack on those false teachers, is calling out the sin that they're engaged in and showing the evidence for their sin by proving it from the evidences of wickedness and examples of wickedness from the past, using, using past examples to show what these false teachers are engaged in. And that's important because these false teachers are not bringing any new heresy. They may say that they're bringing some new revelation or new teaching, but it's the same old heresies. It's the same stuff that the church has had to endure and defend against since the beginning of history. And it's the same sort of false teachings that we still endure and contend against to this day. So last month, when we last looked at this passage, we looked at the first half of Jude's diatribe against these false teachers. But we're going to give ourselves kind of a running start. We're mostly focused on verses 11 through 16 today, but I want to start reading in verse 5 to give us a head start and remind us of what has been said about these false teachers. So this is Jude starting in verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the, the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude's a real ray of sunshine here in this passage. So like I said, we're looking particularly at verses 11 through 16 today. And Jude lays into some very eloquent name-calling in this passage. Now, these are not meant to be simply derogatory insults that, that Jude is throwing at these false teachers. And, and make no mistake, these are insults. These are meant to, to show the wickedness and the deceitfulness of these false teachers. Each of these insults is purposeful. It addresses unique aspects of these false teachers' hypocrisy. And Jude takes the majority of his book, this, this short letter, to denounce these false teachers and to describe just how wicked their actions are because he knew that defending the faith means being willing to call out sin. Defending the faith means being willing to call out sin. And that's what he's going to show us through this passage. So we're going to see it in two main sections. The first section being verses 11 through 13. And this is the folly of these. Now if you noticed as we were reading through this passage, Jude regularly refers to the false teachers as these or these people. He's showing, he's describing them in specific ways and keeps saying these are this. These are wicked fiends. These are hidden reefs, things like that. So that's where we're getting the, the folly of these. And right away in this passage, Jude is not holding back Anything. Right away in verse 11, he pronounces woe on these false teachers. This word woe is an automatopoeia, meaning that it's a, it's a word that sounds like the thing that it describes. And our, our English word for it is actually pretty similar to the Greek word for it. And it's meant to express the pain 
it will come from certain judgment. There's judgment that is pronounced against these false teachers, and this woe is meant to describe the pain that they will experience in that judgment. This word is always used in Scripture to intensify emotion. So I don't know if you noticed as we were reading through this passage, but starting in verse 5, Jude begins by giving a, a logical argument. He's showing, look at these, look at these examples from the past and how they wandered away from the, the commands of God and were punished for it. In the same way, these false teachers are engaged in that same activity. That's what he's getting at. And now his emotions are ramping up and he's getting more and more angry over the fact that these false teachers have infiltrated the church and are deceiving people into believing things that are not true about the Christian faith. So he lets his righteous indignation out by pronouncing woe on these people. This is similar to Jesus' own outcries against the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of His day, calling them whitewashed tombs, blind guides, and pronouncing judgment upon them as well. This is the same thing that Jude is doing with these false teachers for the way that they are misleading God's people. In, in verses 5-7, through seven, we saw three examples from the past that showed what these false teachers are engaged in. But now Jude gives us three more examples from the past in verse 11. Jude accuses these false teachers of walking in the way of Cain. So that means living a lifestyle similar to that of Cain. The, 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 the firstborn of, of Adam and Eve. He lived a life of greed and seeking selfish gain. We see that from the fact that when his sacrifice was not received with the same fervor as his brother Abel's, he was so angry that he went and murdered his brother. Jewish tradition holds that Cain led his descendants into the same pattern of sin in a sinful lifestyle. I mean, we can see that right away in Genesis 4. If you read through the genealogy that comes from Cain, just a few generations removed from Cain, one of his descendants boasts of killing a person. So it's not just that they're admitting the same kind of sin, they're celebrating it. So we see that they're following in the same pattern of, of sin and wickedness. These false teachers have given into the same type of sinful path. They have, Jude says that they have abandoned themselves. They are fully surrendered to this sinful lifestyle, Jude says, for the sake of gain. And they're falling into the same error that Balaam did. Now, talking about Balaam, this, this recalls our attention back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapters 22 through 24. This is where the king of Moab was afraid of the Israelites coming through his land as they were about to enter the promised land. And so he calls on Balaam and hires him to pronounce a curse on Israel. 
And Balaam takes the money and says, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll do this if, if someone's going to pay me to do this. And the irony of the story is that even though Balaam had purposed to pronounce a curse on these people, God only lets him pronounce blessings on the people of Israel. So it backfires on him. It backfires on the king of Moab. So these false teachers have committed themselves to sinful gain rather than biblical faithfulness. And just like it backfired on Balaam, it will backfire on these false teachers because they, they will perish. They will be judged in a similar way to those who were part of Korah's rebellion. Now, Korah's rebellion is another reference back to the book of Numbers. This is Numbers 16. This is just a couple of chapters after we read about the nation of Israel being commanded to go into the promised land, and they refuse. They, they're too scared. They, they're too nervous. They, they don't want to do what God has told them to do. And so the Lord punishes them with, with a curse and also says that everyone in the generation who refused to go into the promised land will not see the promised land ever. They will all die in the wilderness and the next generation will be the ones who lead God's people into the promised land. Just two chapters after they have been severely punished for complaining and rebelling, they're back at the same thing. They're engaged in the same kind of problem. And 250 leaders or thereabouts within the nation of Israel, led principally by Korah, they accuse Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves too highly above the rest of the nation of Israel. Think of how ridiculous that is. Moses and Aaron were the ones that God appointed as his leaders over the nation of Israel, leading them into the promised land. But according to these rebelers, these, the, the, these rebels, I should say, they've, they've exalted themselves too highly. And in Numbers 16, verse 3, this is part of their accusation against Moses and Aaron. They say this, For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So they're pridefully coming to Moses and Aaron and saying, you guys are being too prideful. And exalting yourselves too highly after they're just in a position where they showed that, that they are not walking in obedience to what God has told them to do. There's some irony here as well in the fact that the, these are people who have not shown themselves to really be holy and righteous in their actions, even though they're called to be that, and now they're calling themselves holy. Well, Moses sets up another meeting for the next day with these rebels who are trying to usurp Moses and Aaron's authority, saying that the Lord will determine who is His chosen leadership between these two groups. 
And the Lord, of course, chooses Moses because that Moses has been his appointed leader over the nation of Israel this entire time. And the ground splits underneath these rebels, the, the people who were aligned with Korah, and the ground swallows them up. Now this, this is the same sort of fate, not, not literally, but this is the same sort of fate that befalls false teachers, those who are trying to deceive and lead astray God's people. It's not as if the Lord is going to open up the ground underneath every false teacher. It'd be kind of a rude awakening if some some pastor was standing on the stage, the ground opened up underneath him. It'd be quite the wake-up call for for a lot of people. But these false teachers are doomed to the same ultimate fate as Korah's rebellion, Balaam, Cain, the, the examples that were given previously, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the nation of Israel, that generation that grumbled and complained against God. In this one verse, verse 11, Jude has laid out a full progression of the sin of these false teachers. They've chosen a lifestyle of sin and greed that has led to error. They're walking in error, blatantly so. They're teaching unbiblical things for the sake of their own personal gain. This is rebellion against the Lord and it will result in destruction. There's even a parallel here with Psalm 1 where that Psalm says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the pathway of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Anyone who associates with this worldly attitude and chooses to to reside in this this worldly lifestyle will have this same level of destruction. This same judgment will befall those people. The end of Psalm 1 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the same thing that these false teachers are falling into. And now, in verses 12 and 13, the gloves really come off. This is where we we really see the the name-calling coming out. Justified name-calling. Judas expressed that the sin of these false teachers is nothing new. It's walking in the same pattern as the ungodly from even from all the way back to the time of Cain. But now, we see just what they are doing and how it is leading God's people astray. Jude gives six analogies for what these false teachers are engaged in. And each analogy in these two verses gives the idea of deceit. These people are engaging in sin, rebellion, falsehood, and are trying to deceive others into doing the same things that they are. So let's look at each of these. These are, these are important. It's, it's good that we take time to understand what these mean. First, Jude calls these false teachers hidden reefs. 
This is meant to signify danger that is lurking just out of sight. You know, if you're standing in a boat or a ship, you look down, there might be a shallow reef, shallow coral reef underneath you that is just outside of your visibility, whether it's because the sun's reflecting off the, off the water, or it's just low enough that it's in shadows or something, but it's still close enough that as the boat goes through this reef, it begins to scrape up against the reef and the coral, and it starts to, to damage the boat. That boat might spring a leak and be in serious trouble because they didn't realize that they were wandering into this, this hidden reef. Now this plays into the fact that these false teachers, according to Jude in verse 4, have crept in unnoticed. So they, they came into the church looking like true believers. They were exemplifying spiritual maturity, became prominent within the congregation to the point that people relied on them in teaching roles and looking for guidance from them. And all of a sudden you start to see a shift in the things that they say and the things that they do. And all of a sudden, what, what they said that they believe and the way that they're living does not line up. Like, wait, what's going on? This, this doesn't look like what I remember. I never thought it would have been these people who would, would try to lead people astray from, from the Gospel. That's the danger that Jude is talking about here. The danger that is lying just below the surface, just out of visibility, but causes serious harm. Now Jude mentions that there are hidden reefs at your love feasts. So these love feasts were congregational meals that the early church took part in on a regular basis. Usually when they would gather to worship together, they would also gather for a meal. Essentially, these were the first Baptist potlucks. So it's scriptural. Don't let anyone tell you potlucks aren't in scripture. The significant thing about these love feasts is that they they would partake in this meal together, but they also took time to celebrate communion together at this time. They would take the Lord's Supper at the same time, to commemorate Christ's sacrifice. Now this is important, and this is why Jude brings this up, because he says that there are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. And we talk, every time that we take communion together, we say that this is an opportunity for you to confess sin that, that you have let go unrepentant in your heart. And anyone who has unrepentant sin is not willing to repent of it, should not partake in the communion elements. Well, these false teachers are actively engaging in partaking the Lord's Supper and they're doing it without fear because they have no concern for their sin. They see no problem with the sin that they are committing and the damage that it is having on their church. So they're willing to 
engage in this thing that they ought not engage in because they are so self-deceived into thinking that they are righteous when their deeds are the exact opposite. So they're already eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. We'll see later the the fate that, that will befall them, the judgment that is coming against them. Secondly, Jude refers to these false teachers as shepherds feeding themselves. So this is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, you even think about the the passage in John 10 where Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Shepherds ought to sacrifice themselves on behalf of of the sheep in order to provide for the sheep. Instead, these people sacrifice the sheep on behalf of themselves. They're willing to feed themselves, but not willing to feed and care for the sheep under their care. I'm trying to move through these rather quickly. I don't don't want to take too much time on this. But... Look at Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 8 sometime on your own to see just what God thinks of shepherds who care more about themselves than about their sheep. Again, it's Ezekiel 34, 1 through 8, if you're interested. The third analogy that Jude gives, he calls these false teachers waterless clouds. Now this would have been particularly significant to the original audience because the the world at the time was a primarily agrarian society. Most people were engaged in farming to some degree. And rainfall is huge for farms, for farmers. They rely heavily on a certain amount of rainfall throughout the year. Rainfall is a natural source of water to, to, as sustenance for their crops. And even not, not just the crops that they're hoping to grow, but also sustenance for the grass that becomes food for their animals, like sheep or any other animals that, that any farm may be taking care of. It replenishes reservoirs so that farmers are are able to continue watering their crops longer term. They've got this store of of fresh water that they can hold on to and use to supply their crops beyond just each passing rainfall. And And thirdly, it washes away any dust or dirt that is accumulated, excuse me, on these plants. So it's keeping the plants clean, giving them sustenance, allowing for them to grow and develop and bear fruit or or seed or whatever it is that, that they're growing, whatever crops they're growing, so that, that they would have a plentiful harvest. So this society would have relied heavily on, on rainfall. But clouds that look like they carry rain and then don't deliver that rain are in some ways deceitful, but mostly just very unhelpful. Think about it. You you go. You, you see 
a cloud that looks like it's got a lot of rain to dump down. You're like, yes, this is exactly what my farm needs. And then you just watch it pass on by and, and nothing happens. It, it doesn't, it's just blown through by the wind and doesn't let down any rain. Well, that was a waste of time. That wasn't helpful. Now I've got to go take care of this some other way. In the same way, teachers who boast of providing spiritual growth for those who listen to them and yet teach the opposite of that are just as deceitful and and unhelpful as a cloud that does not give water. Proverbs 25.14 says essentially the same thing. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift that he does not give. They say that they have this one thing to offer and then don't give it. They're nothing better than a cloud that promises rain and gives nothing. Keeping with the topic of crops, the next analogy that Jude gives is the idea of fruitless trees. He specifically says fruitless trees in late autumn. The harvest season was during the summer and into the autumn months. So we're getting to the end of the harvest. This is the time when trees and plants ought to be producing the ripest fruit that that they're able to give during this harvest season because they're coming up on the end of everything. And yet, these false teachers are no better than trees that have not produced fruit for the entire season of harvest. Instead, they bear the rotten fruit of wickedness. We saw earlier in the book of Jude that they're engaged in sexual immorality, adultery, blasphemy, open dissension against God's appointed leaders. This, this brings our attention back to a parable from Jesus in Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, 6 through 9 is the parable of the barren fig tree. It's, Jesus tells the story of a man who owned a great field and he goes and he, and he finds this one fig tree that doesn't have any fruit on it, even though it's in the harvest time. And he turns to, to the guy who's essentially his second in command over this, over his land and he says, look, this tree hasn't produced fruit for the last three years. It's just taking up space. It's wasting space and time. Let's just cut it down, turn it into firewood and fuel, and be done with it. And then the, the, the second in command, his assistant, says, well, let's, let's give it another year. Let me give a little bit of extra attention to this, to this tree, put some more fertilizer around it, see what I can do, see if I can revitalize this thing so it'll actually produce some fruit. But if, if at this time next year it still isn't doing anything, then I agree. It's time to just be done with this thing, chop it up, turn it into fuel, and, and move on. Find something else that, that will actually produce good fruit here. So we see in this parable and in this analogy of fruitless trees because of this parable, both the grace and the justice of God. Because there's grace given to this fig tree in the parable. 
Because even though it's not produced anything for many years, it's given another year and careful attention so that it might produce fruit. And this is the same sort of thing where we see, we see Jude calling out sin and warning these false teachers. We'll see the warning of the fate that will befall false teachers later on in this. This is really a warning cry for these false teachers that they would turn from their wickedness and that they would bear fruit of righteousness. This is almost the, the, the calling out of sin and the calling to repentance is this kind of extra year that Jesus talks about that's given to this barren fig tree in an attempt to see if that tree will actually produce some fruit. And if after that call to repentance, these people are still bearing fruit of wickedness, well, then we know what judgment will befall them in the future. So we see the grace of God in, in calling out people for their sin and calling them to repentance, but we also see the justice of God that He will not let unrighteousness stand. He will not let it go unpunished. Fifth, Jude refers to these false teachers as wild waves. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. So these are these wild waves are uncontrolled. They're tossing boats to and fro, causing shipwrecks and, and boats to be capsized, things like that. This is playing off a similar imagery that we find in Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21, where Isaiah says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And toss, we see that in Jude, and tossing up the foam of their own shame, this mire and dirt. And Isaiah says, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Both in the fact that they're causing these wild waves of uncontrolled sin and, and other actions, but there will be no peace for them in the end. That is what we see befalling these false teachers. These false teachers have let their sinful desires dictate their path, and now they are guiding other people. They're, tr- they're carrying others along in the same pattern of sin that they're engaged in. This is the exact opposite of what God commands of the teachers in His church. We see that pretty plainly in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, where, where Paul says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to the church for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, strengthening them in the faith. Verse 14 specifically talks about the fact that this is, the goal of this is so that we would not be children in the faith tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Paul uses the same imagery that Jude uses here. Instead of giving these people an anchor and a lifeline, 
in the midst of tumultuous waves, these false teachers are kicking up the same waves and causing the shipwreck of people's faith. They're engaged in the exact opposite thing that they ought to be engaged in. And finally, Jude refers to them as wandering stars. Now, long ago, before there was Google Maps or anything that came before it, it's so sad, I don't even remember like what, what some of those websites would have been called. MapQuest. Oh my gosh, I've been trying to think of this for like the past three days. <laughs> Let, just just a, a, mo- a moment of pure honesty. I, I was racking my brain trying to think, what was that website that we would always like put in directions for? MapQuest. That's what it was. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's get back to it. Before Google Maps or MapQuest or anything like that, people would use the stars to navigate. They charted the positions of the stars and, and, and specific seasons where, where they would see certain stars and for how long and um, just using those sorts of star charts to get their bearings throughout the year so that even in the, in the, the cover of night, they would be able to travel and know what direction they're going. Well, how are you supposed to navigate if the stars that you're relying on to give you direction start wandering around the night sky? Wandering stars would have left people directionless. They would not have been able to understand, to figure out where they're going. It's the same sort of thing with these false teachers. They're leaving people spiritually directionless. You know, we, we even have like the perfect analogy for this today, thanks to modern technology. You know, we, we live in the Pacific Northwest, so you know the, the five days a year that we actually get to see the night sky, um, don't laugh. It's you know it's true. The few times that we're able to see the night sky, you might look up and, and see a few stars. And you see one that all of a sudden, like you look at it, you think that it's a star at first glance, but you look at it a little bit more, you see that it's like blinking and flashing, and it's starting to move pretty quickly across the sky. You're like, oh, that's not a star. That's just a satellite that's out orbiting Earth. So we, we have the perfect like image of what that would look like if we were trying to get directions from the stars and we're relying on something that's just moving along in the sky. Now, like I said, these people that Jude is denouncing, they were teachers in the church. They had ingratiated themselves to the point that they were teaching others. People in the congregation were coming to them for guidance. And yet they had wandered away from the truth And so they were guiding people in the same sinful direction that they had gone. That's the danger here. And they will suffer the consequences of this. 
Jude specifically says what those consequences would be, will be to some degree at the end of verse 13. Where he talks about these being wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is what awaits these false teachers. And this is in total contrast to what we see said about the righteous and those who lead people in righteous actions. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So those who are engaged in righteousness and train up others who walk in righteousness will shine like stars into eternity. And by extreme contrast, those who live unrighteous lives and train others to walk in their same level of wickedness will suffer darkness and utter gloom for all of eternity. This is the fate of these. And that's our second point, the fate of these. So we've already seen glimpses of what is going to become of these false teachers. And now Jude gets into the details of what that will look like. And he does that by quoting a prophecy from Enoch. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll recognize that I've never heard of the book of Enoch. The only Enoch I know of in the Bible is part of a genealogy way back at the beginning of Genesis. Well, you're correct. And that is who Jude is talking about. He specifically says, Enoch the seventh from Adam. So that, that's right in this early genealogy. Enoch shows up in all of six verses in Genesis chapter 5. He's, it goes into specific detail about and We get some pretty unique information about Enoch in verses 21 through 24 of Genesis 5. It says that Enoch was a righteous man who walked with God. And a result, as a result of that, it says that he walked with God and was no more, for God took him. He just one day disappeared. He's one of only two people in all of Scripture to never die, that the Lord just took into His presence. Now, Jewish tradition believes that he received visions. There, there, there'd be some validity to an assumption like this. If he was so righteous and was so close with God that the Lord took him after 365 years on earth, just plucked him off the earth and brought him into his presence, then it would be reasonable to assume that the Lord gave him visions of what was to come. And we do have at least one apocryphal book that is attributed to Enoch that has visions and prophecies in it. Jude is probably bringing this up and this particular prophecy because he knows that the majority of his audience will recognize this reference, even if we don't recognize it today. And even if this was not included in the Old Testament canon, really at at any given time. 
It's been it's one of those books that those never recognized as part of the canon, but has been a benefit to different generations of of Christians for for different reasons like this, where we we have this one reference here in in the book of Jude. But there are there are other scripture passages to corroborate the exact same thing that Jude is getting at by quoting Enoch here. Uh, One in particular that you can look up in your own time would be Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. That, That gets to the same level of judgment that we see here in Enoch's prophecy. But think about this as well. Not only do we just do do we just have this pronouncement of judgment? The thing about the fact that this pronouncement of judgment comes all the way back at the time of Enoch, just a few generations removed from the creation of the world. If judgment of the wicked was predicted this early in the course of human history, redemptive history, these false teachers better watch out. Because they've been warned of this for millennia, essentially. So what does Enoch have to say? Well, he says that the Lord is coming to judge. And we see in verse 14, specifically, he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones. I want to focus on where it says the Lord comes. And we're going to get, in, get a little bit into the Greek here. If you were to translate this literally from Greek, it would be written out in the past tense. Basically, it would say the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all. This is what scholars refer to as the prophetic perfect. It is something that the, the one who is making this prophecy is so sure is going to happen. It is so certain that he writes about it in the past tense as if it has already happened because he knows that it will happen in the future. So Jude is giving a warning to all of us, in particular the false teachers, but to all of us. This is going to happen. The Lord is going to come and He is going to judge sin and unrighteousness. It is going to happen. The Lord is coming with myriads of His holy ones to execute judgment. This idea of ten thousands, which we could also turn into myriads or hosts or armies. So this is playing into the title that is given to God of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. And He is coming to and bringing His armies of His holy ones to execute judgment for sin. But more than that, to convict people of their sin. The word that is translated convict here is one that that means to bring people to the point where even these ungodly false teachers will recognize their sin for what it actually is. They'll finally come to the realization of the sinfulness and the wickedness of their actions. But at that point, it will be too late because they will be convicted of this sin and then comes the judgment. It will be too late. The, The fruit tree has had time to produce fruit. Its time is up. 
It's time to be cut down and thrown in the fire. So in this prophecy, Jude through Enoch states that God will judge the wicked based on the two most obvious ways that you can see the fruit in a person's life. What, the, the fruit of their life that, that shows the character of their, of their heart. You know, if you've been in our Sunday school study through James, this will be familiar to you because he is focusing on their deeds and their words. What we say and what we do are a direct reflection of who we are, what, what the, the focus of our hearts are. So he starts off by describing these deeds that will be, that will be judged by God. And he says that they're deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. There's three different times in this passage that he uses ungodly or ungodliness because he's talking about these ungodly people and their deeds of ungodliness that they have done in an ungodly way. All of this repetition here, make no mistake from this. These ungodly deeds were not done by accident. They were done from hearts that were overflowing with ungodliness. Similarly, the Lord is going to judge the words of these same ungodly people, this sort of ungodly speech that is coming from them. Specifically, it refers to all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him, against God, the Lord of hosts, their Creator, the one that they claimed as their Savior for these false teachers in the church. They've claimed Christ as their Savior, and yet they are talking blasphemously against God. You know, this harkens back to verse 10 of Jude, where Jude says that these people blaspheme what they do not understand. Their words blaspheme the God that they claim to have trusted in, and this, and through this, they prove their biblical ignorance, more importantly, their hypocrisy. These are ungodly, unrighteous, wicked people who should not be teaching. And Jude gives his own commentary after this, this prophecy from Enoch. He gives his own last bit of commentary on the speech and actions of these ungodly people, particularly their speech. And I've found this really interesting to... Pay attention here in verse 16 to how Jude bookends this section and ties everything back in some way to verse 11. He starts off by saying that these are grumblers and malcontents. Well, in verse 11, we saw grumblers and malcontents in Korah's rebellion. They rebelled against God and grumbled against his leadership. 
These false teachers are following the same pattern as that generation of Israel that was doomed to walk around in the wilderness and die without seeing the promised land. I mean, if you read through the account of that generation in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, I mean, just reading through it, I get annoyed at that generation because they're constantly grumbling and complaining despite everything that Moses is doing for them, everything that God is doing for them. And yet they continue to grumble and complain against Moses. And by the way, it's not just against Moses that they're grumbling and complaining, but they're, they're grumbling, their complaints are being lodged against the God who put Moses in charge of them. So they're grumbling against God. These false teachers are falling into that same pattern. It even says that following their own sinful desires in verse 16. Who followed their own sinful desires back in verse 11? Cain. Cain let his anger toward God and his brother lead him into a murderous rage because he didn't get what he thought he deserved. He harbored this bitterness and anger and murderous thoughts because he saw his brother as a barrier in the way of getting what he thought he deserved. And in the same way, these false teachers who are grumbling and complaining about things that don't go the way that they think they ought to, they fall into this same pattern of sin and harboring hatred, bitterness, murder in their hearts toward those that they see as of no advantage to them who are just going to get in their way from getting what they feel they want. Following after their own sinful desires. These people, Jude says, are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Well, who favored one side over the other to gain something for himself? Balaam. Balaam was in it for the money. He went where the money was. He promised to do what the king of Moab told him to do so that he could get a nice payday for himself. These false teachers grumbling and complaining against those who were a disadvantage to them and then choose to play nice with those who would be an advantage and give, give them what they think that they deserve or what they think that they need. They're selling ju- the justice and righteousness of God for the sake of their own selfish gain. Jude has already shown that the fate of these is sealed. Their doom and judgment will come. It is sure. So what do we do with this? How are we supposed to respond to this? Well, we know that Jude's call to contend for the faith in verse 3 still applies to us today. We know that there are still false teachers and hypocrites within our midst, many of whom we may not 
have ever anticipated being those false teachers who would lead people astray. Jude has shown us that a major part of defending the faith is denouncing sin and calling out sin for what it is. We need to have the same boldness as Jude in calling out sin for what it is. Now, this must be done not out of spite or anger or anything like that, but it must be done in love. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter talks about giving a defense for the Gospel. He opens that verse by saying that we must honor Christ as holy in our hearts. So, foundation here, we, we must be seeking to honor Christ as holy within our hearts as we do this. And then Peter says, to make a defense, we, mu- we must always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that lies within us. So we, we ought always be ready to tell people why we have the hope that we do in Christ. And that is fueled by a heart that is desiring to honor Christ. And as a result of that, Peter closes this verse by saying that we must do it with gentleness and respect. We must do this out of love, showing the righteous call of God, our own sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice on our behalf that has made us righteous in the sight of God, and the the implications of that for the rest of our lives, how we ought to live. I've touched on this a little bit throughout this throughout the sermon, but it is out of love that Jude is writing this letter, even though we've I've rightly described this as eloquent name calling and insults. This is this is done out of love for for all parties involved, really, because Jude's original audience was experiencing doubt and fear because of these false teachers. Either they. They're thinking, you know, either I've missed something about the gospel or or there's just something wrong. Some, something's happening. I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm, not, I'm confused. I'm worried about this. So Jude thoroughly denounces the false teachers in this short letter as a way of encouragement for the people who were anxious and doubting in their faith. Encouraging the, his readers to live, to not live as these false teachers have lived, but to continue holding fast to the faith that they heard first and have trusted in. But at the same time, this is meant to be out of love for the false teachers. It is showing a warning of what awaits the unrighteous. And at the time that he writes this, these false teachers are still active within the church. So the the desire would be to call out these false teachers for their ungodliness, that they would realize it, that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin. They would repent of it and trust in Christ. That is the hope. 
And it is loving to denounce sin in this way in an effort to bring these people to saving faith in Christ. We must be willing to call out sin. But we need to be very careful to not fall into the same sinful pattern that these have stepped into. We can't engage in conversations where we call out sin in a sinful way. It must be done out of love. We need to examine our own lives and address any similar hypocrisy that we find in our own lives. Dealing with the log in our own eye before trying to take care of the speck in the other person's eye. Someone much wiser than me said that a long time ago. The best way to confront the sin of others is to pursue righteousness in your own life and use that as a way to show the deceitfulness of sin. I'll I'll close with this, this story, this example. Albert Schweitzer was a, an early 20th century German theologian. He was, he was a, a brilliant guy. He was a musician and all-around polymath. Um, unfortunately, his theology was, in my opinion, woefully wrong. Uh, I, I have many things I disagree with with his theology. And he received a fair amount of harsh criticism for the theological stances that he took, even during his life. There there were many people who criticized the work that he did. And he was regularly engaged in mission work and mercy ministries in in the places where he lived. And despite the criticism that was thrown at him, he kept at the work that he felt God had purpose for him to do. He was faithful to the work that, that God had called him to do. Meanwhile, his family and friends were wondering and asking him how he was going to respond to these harsh criticisms. And in one letter that he wrote to a friend in response to this, Schweitzer writes this, I decided that I would make my life my argument. So instead of speaking out against these criticisms, he continued in his faithful work that he felt the Lord had given for him to do. Now, like I said, I disagree pretty strongly with a lot of what Schweitzer promoted as far as theology goes. But I can applaud his decision to stay faithful to the work that God had given him and let that be the evidence of God's faithfulness in his life. One last thing. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. It should be just a few pages to the left of Jude. 1 Peter 4. I want to read verses 14 through 16. Let me get there. First Peter 4. So Peter writes this. If you are insulted 
for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, Judas spent a lot of time denouncing these false teachers. And he has the right to do so because they have proved themselves to be evildoers. They are suffering as evildoers and they will continue to suffer as evildoers if they do not turn from their wicked ways. Don't let that be you. Make your life your argument. Persevere. Hold fast to the faith that you trusted in. The true Gospel of Christ. Even if that means that you suffer as a Christian, continue to glorify God in the way that you live. Let your life reflect the righteousness of Christ. Don't get carried away by these ungodly, deceitful schemers. Hold fast to the faith. Defend it. Contend for it. Persevere in that endeavor. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for Your grace to us. That in Your kindness, You have not judged us according to our sin immediately after we do it, but You have been kind and gracious and patient with us. And that kindness has led us to repentance, those of us who have trusted in You. Father, I pray that You would give us that same patience, that same perseverance, that same grace while we continue in lives of faithfulness. Father, give us boldness to live lives of righteousness and to call out the sin of others in a loving and righteous way. Let us not get carried away by deceitful schemes that seem to that seem right in some way. Let us hold fast to your word and what we have believed there. Let us trust in you all the more. Give us the boldness to defend your gospel, to contend for it, to fight for it strenuously to the point of our death if need be. Let us fight for Your Gospel in righteousness, in love, in gentleness, in humility, even as we address the sins of others. Father, strengthen us. Keep us close to Yourself so that we will be faithful in this, that we would not fall into the same sinful, ungodly pattern in denouncing these people, that we would trust You and let Your Word speak through us. 
Work within us, Father, we pray. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.